0: Chapter eleven of Juggernaut A Veiled Record This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Roger Moleen Juggernaut A Veiled Record by George Carey Eggleston and Dolores Marborg Chapter eleven For a man on his wedding journey, Brain seemed to have an extraordinary amount of business to attend to from the first hour of his arrival in New York. Sometimes it occupied his mornings, and sometimes his downtown engagement stretched far into the afternoon, though he avoided that as much as possible, and managed almost always to have his evenings free. In his hours of freedom he threw off care so completely that if Helen had been capable of doubting anything he said, she would not have believed in his business engagements at all. He took her to the theaters, where light summer plays of no possible interest were running, and joined in the poor sport with the relish of a boy, and apparently without once thinking of the affairs with which he was toiling downtown every day. He sought out all the places where summer music was to be heard. He went to the seaside, and would sit on the sands for hours with Helen, idly listening to the lazy swash of the surf as it surged in from the indolent summer sea. He watched even the merry-go-rounds with a contagious interest in the joy the children seemed to get out of them. And yet all this time Brain was playing a great game with success or failure for the stakes, a game mainly of skill at which he was a novice while his adversaries were veterans if he succeeded nothing was beyond his reach if he failed but he did not contemplate failure it had never been his habit at first helen enjoyed the privacy of a stranger in the great town going and coming at will knowing nobody and expecting attention from nobody but this was of brief duration and signs that it was destined speedily to end appeared when men of wealth and social prominence began to show themselves at the hotel with brain and to seek presentation to herself in her private parlor it was during this blissful period of obscurity that helen wrote in the diary we have been in the city now three days i am happy but tired out with the rush of new experiences I am still in the daze occasioned by the suddenness with which events have occurred. Married and seeing New York, all in six days, is too much for any woman, even a Western woman. And my wardrobe! Until this evening I have had no time to think of it. But at this moment it comes to me with terrible and tragic force that I have just three presentable dresses to my name. And these are not so presentable as they seemed before we went down to dinner that first evening. By the way, dinner means that of which I have never dreamed before, and means it at six o'clock. In Thebes dinner meant a sort of juggling at noon, and supper a scrabble at six. Dinner here means science, art, and awesome ability in someone. FOR JUST ONE MOMENT I WAS READY TO SINK THROUGH THE FLOOR WHEN I ENTERED THE DINING ROOM. NO, WE DINED IN THE CAFE. THESE LITTLE DISTINCTIONS MUST NOT ESCAPE ME, NOR BE NEGLECTED. BUT IN AN INSTANT I GLANCED AT EDGAR, WHO SEEMED SO UNCONCERNED WITH SURROUNDING THINGS, AND SO PREOCCUPIED WITH SOME WEIGHTY MATTER, THAT EVERYTHING BUT HIM SEEMED TO SINK INTO INSIGNIFICANCE, AND BY THE TIME I WAS SEATED AT THE TABLE, and remembered the strangeness and magnificence of it all, I had forgotten to be overpowered. I noticed that Edgar was looking at me with a smile, and very earnestly once, and when I said, "'What is it?' he replied, "'Any other woman who had never eaten terrapin would have said that she didn't like it. This dinner has convinced me that you are a wonderful woman.' I half understood him and my happiness at having unconsciously pleased him made me blush the blush itself seemed to delight him and he said good heavens a woman who has had time to enjoy terrapin and is still able to blush so beautifully i left the dining room in a state of mind almost bordering on exultation people stare very rudely here everyone looked at us edgar did not seem to observe it but somehow i could not help being conscious of it i first thought that they looked at edgar but i found they were staring at me too that was because i was with him i am more than ever determined to keep up with him as well as i can that i may be no drag upon his advancement or rather on his efforts to advance others i experience a little suspicion of regret now and then Edgar and I cannot possibly seem so near to each other while we are amid such startling surroundings, and one has to bear in mind, to an extent, that she must not appear too much surprised. He has hardly been in the room half an hour at a time since our arrival. He no sooner comes in and gets ready to talk to me than he receives a card from someone and goes to the parlor. He will have no one come to our private parlor. He says, not yet, and laughs. He seems almost fierce sometimes, at the thought of other people even looking at me. He said, when he saw a man looking after me in the hall, it makes me feel murderous. These men are not fit to breathe the same atmosphere with you. Neither am I, for that matter, any more. But I love you. That makes it different. And what I do is because I love you. It delights me cruelly to hear him depreciate himself, not because of that depreciation but because it illustrates his extraordinary love for me. I wish we were in the little cottage at Thebes. The sweet Williams are ravishingly sweet now, and I would like to have just my dog near when I love Edgar so. He would be so sympathetic. There is such an aggressive feeling of selfishness in the air here something not quite sympathetic or clean or good it is because it is all new and strange to me of course but it certainly seems so i mentioned this thoughtlessly a while ago and edgar threw his arms around me and stopped the words with kisses i know that he did it so that i would say no more for his face looked peculiarly pained his lips quivered for a moment and that almost frightened me. Such a thing in Edgar means more than even I can divine. In a moment he was gravely gay again. Even in his merriest moments there is a sweet dignity about him that fascinates and commands me. I seem to demand, but he seems to command. There is no other man living whom I could have loved. New York, July 2nd until now i have always thought that the day on which i met edgar was the most marvelous one of my life i now think it is not so this has been the most eventful one surely last night i said to ed that this morning i must go out and get something to wear he said very well while i am downtown you can do your shopping that was all that was said we breakfasted at nine and at ten Ed said we had better go, as he must be downtown by ten-thirty. I had no idea where to go or just what to do. There was a certain embarrassment about the situation, but I concealed the fact and trusted to Ed's wonderful management and delicacy. He was equal to the occasion. Nothing was said as to where I should go or concerning means with which to go until we reached the hotel entrance. He put me into a coupé and said, "'The man will take you to an establishment where they can tell you what you want without your having to bother about it,' and thrust a roll of bills into my hand, threw me a kiss, nodded, smiled, and closed the door. The coupé started before I could recover from astonishment. For a minute I sat looking at the bills in my hand they made a terrible roll. When I found what he had given me, I could only gasp and drop them on the floor. The amount frightened me. I was sure that he had made a mistake, and I put the bills in a separate compartment of my purse, all but fifty dollars, to give them back when I returned. We stopped at a lady's tailoring establishment of some kind, I was really too much overcome and disturbed to know what I was about. The coachman opened the coupé door and said, "'Blossoms, madame,' and my heart quite stopped beating for a moment. But I suddenly felt the necessity of not displaying my ignorance, for Edgar's sake, and pretended to be preoccupied and so gained time to look about me covertly and prepare an excuse for any faux pas on my part. Well in about one minute after i entered the parlour i felt that i had been born passing judgement on styles and fabrics i seemed to have nothing to do i said rather abstractly and indifferently something in a street dress i leave it to you and made a little inconsequent gesture in a minute i found everything taken out of my hands and a man and a woman declaring that they knew at once what madame wished they would satisfy me etc etc all in a suddenly changed manner that amazed me they were treating me like some extraordinary personage it was my little gesture of ennui that accomplished this by the way i did not say dress a second time but gown which is now considered the proper term I felt almost like an impostor at first, but I had a desire that Edgar might be there to witness the little performance. I felt that I had at least not disgraced him. Then I said, something in a house gown, when they had settled the street gown. The house gown was decided, and before I knew it they had the most wonderful designs for dinner and reception gowns before me that I ever dreamed of. I seemed to be in a maze, and acquiesced mechanically in what they proposed. Finally, things seemed to come to an end, and I asked for my bill. They were to supply the materials, calculate the cost, etc. They seemed a little surprised, and said I could attend to that at my convenience, when I came tomorrow. I suddenly felt panic-stricken, and determined to find out the extent of my madness. I insisted in a peremptory and dignified way, saying I preferred to settle such little matters on the spot. They kept me waiting half an hour, and then handed me the bill. It makes me faint now to think of that moment. I sat staring at the paper. It amounted to one hundred and fifty dollars more than was in that roll of bills. I felt my hair make an attempt to stand erect i mechanically opened my purse and handed them the money that was to have been returned to edgar and said in a voice that i did not recognize as my own that is all i happen to have with me i will attend to the other trifle to-morrow trifle the remainder was more than i had ever spent for clothes before in a year it never occurred to me that i could countermand the order I felt that I was helpless and in the hands of the Philistines. I gave them my address, fully determined to get back to the hotel and smuggle Edgar off before the next morning, before the trifle could be asked for. I kept saying all the way, we are just married, we are just married. Men always forgive things when they are just married. I said it over and over. When we stopped at the hotel entrance, someone opened the door at once. It was Edgar. He was smiling and helping me out, and saying that he had been smoking and waiting for me. I prayed that I might sink right down through the coal hole in the sidewalk. I did not speak, and Edgar said anxiously, "'Your shopping has been too much for you, dear. You look pale and tired out.' i thought of that trifling balance and nearly staggered i said no oh no and got into our rooms in some way to think that i helen brain who never possessed more than three gowns at once the wife of a man who had had to wear coats with frayed edges should have spent a small fortune in two hours and that there was still a balance and it had yet to be told off that was the worst. I expected to hear him say every minute, By the way, my dear, I made a little mistake this morning and gave you the wrong amount of money. I knew you would understand it. Well, when we were inside our rooms, with the door shut, I leaned up against the wall. Edgar saw there was something terrible the matter, and he looked quite pale and said, What is it? I was waiting for him to say, you haven't spent all the money, and kept thinking to myself very hard, men always forgive things when they are just married. Finally I said, Edgar, how much money have you? And then he stared at me. He laughed and said, how mercenary shopping expeditions do make women. I thought I should drop down in one minute more and hoped that i should die i asked if he had enough to settle our bill and get out of town he said afterward that he thought i had suddenly developed a propensity for shoplifting and had been discovered and that he would have to smuggle me out of the city he looked very serious though when i asked the question and said certainly dear we will not stay a moment longer than you wish to he asked what had happened I managed to guess that I had spent all the money. He looked puzzled and said, "'Well, go on. What is the matter?' And I repeated that I had spent all the money. It seemed heartless for him to torture me by making me repeat it. He looked still more puzzled and said, "'Yes, well, what about it?' I said, "'And there's a, a balance, a trifle. He answered, Of course. Well, and then I don't know what happened. Then I was sobbing, and Edgar kept frantically pouring cologne over me and kissing me and saying, Don't cry for heaven's sake, Helen. And by degrees, he managed to understand the situation. And before I knew it, he was lying back in a chair, fairly shouting with laughter, and my hair was dripping wet and I felt as though I had passed through the resurrection and found myself on the right side. I finally found that there was no mistake except that I had not spent the money for the right things, that I was supposed to have purchased all the little things like gloves and shoes and hats and a hundred other trifles with that, and that this frightful bill was to have been sent in to Edgar or me beside and settled then. I may live to be a thousand, but that terrible hour will always be fresh in my memory. I was not unhappy. I experienced a despair that was truly tragic, and the reaction that followed. Edgar Brain was never so dear and great and glorious before to me. He held me in his arms for two hours and let me cry. He tried to be sympathetic and serious but every few moments he would burst out in an uncontrollable fit of laughter. He, too, says that he will never forget that hour. I am still dazed over the situation, but the relief, oh, the relief. He says that I am to carry no money hereafter, for I don't like it. It seems I don't know what. I don't like to handle it and he says that i am to get anything and everything i want and have the bills sent to him and he will attend to them i shall know how to deport myself to-morrow and know about what i want for i find that i unconsciously noticed everything this morning and am pretty well informed if i had not had that thought that newly married men cannot be very severe at any rate, I don't think they can, judging by Edgar. While I was coming home, to sustain me, I don't think I could have endured that terrible hour. End of chapter 11 Recording by Roger Moline